0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John I'll begin reading in chapter 7. Our focus today will be on 8, 12 through 30. First I want to read John 7, 24 and 7, 50 through 52. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before who was one of them, said to him, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now 8 and verse 12, Again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness to yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray by your grace, your spirit will create a fertile soil for your word right now. That there would be a holiness to this moment. And all that we're hearing the very words of the triune God. His truth. A reverence. A posture of humility. Solemnity. Eagerness. Earnestness. Father I pray. For those who the soil of their heart is altogether from their very birth, because they are they're born in sin, they are destined, unless you do otherwise, to die in sin. I pray you will turn that, that stony heart to soft soil to receive this word concerning Christ, and that they would truly believe, and they would follow Him, hearing His word now. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Before we can deal with our text, we need to deal with the text, the text of Scripture. Some of you may have noticed we skipped 753 through 811. Some of you may have noticed, as you're reading through your Bible, that 753 through 811 are peculiarly set off by a pair of double brackets. Often accompanied by either a heading or a footnote saying something to the effect of some, some of some of the sometimes they'll say the earliest, some manuscripts do not include eight seven fifty three through eight eleven. Others add the passage here or after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. Now, as we've looked in these past weeks at several different passages dealing with judgment and witness and testimony and calling for us to make right judgment, I've said in these messages at times that. A little truth about Jesus can be a dangerous thing. And for knowledge of a little truth, many reject Jesus. This is one of those kind of truths. This passage, examining it, getting a little bit of knowledge. Some learn a little something about Bible manuscripts, and it really is a minuscule something, and from that minuscule something, they draw mighty conclusions. There's one passage that's controversial, and therefore we cannot trust the Bible, they would argue. I'm not going to preach John 7.53 through 8.11. I'm not going to preach them because I believe the call of a minister is to preach the Word of God. And I think at best, 7.53 through 8.11 are questionable. It's my evaluation that they are highly likely oral tradition that at some point was incorporated, true oral tradition from what I can gather, that was incorporated into the text at a later date, but it's not original to John. And I do this not because I think the Bible is weak, but because I think the Bible is so strong. I do this not because I see a weak text and then conclude that we have a a weak bible. I do this because I see we have such a strong bible and that this text doesn't measure up. The manus- now for those who want to draw the conclusion that we have a weak text of scripture. Consider this. The manuscript pool that we have for the New Testament is so strong. <laughs> just in comparison to other ancient documents, we have no reason to doubt that we have the very Word of God. So strong that it makes a weak text like this stand out from from the Scriptures. Behind the Bible, the strongest ancient text that we have, the runner-up for manuscript strength, is likely, from all that I can gather, Homer's Iliad. We have 600 copies, and the earliest copy is roughly 400 years removed from the original date of expected composition. 600 manuscripts, 400 years removed. And that is an exceptional case. So let's take something that's more Par for the course. Let's take something that's in the same genre and more typical of ancient documents. No one doubts it. Caesar's Gallic Wars, 10 copies, only 10, and nearly 900 years removed from the date of original composition. That's par for the course pretty much, when you're looking at ancient documents. Whenever we turn to the new scriptures, well, it says one author says, it's almost embarrassing the wealth we enjoy by comparison. Some 6,000, nearly 6,000 manuscripts strong, and many of those manuscripts only being no more than 100 years removed, just over 100 years removed from the date of original composition. Are there variations in the manuscripts? Sure, there's variations. But they are almost always totally insignificant. A matter of spelling, a matter of syntax, none of them ever making any kind of significant theological difference to the meaning of the text. And because of this wealth, we can be extremely competent as we compare them and look at them together, that we can re- reconstruct with extremely, insanely high accuracy the very words given to the original author of the text. I don't believe this account of the woman caught in adultery is original to John. And this kind of thing you need to know is extremely rare. In fact, it's so rare that the only place that's comparable to what you look at with this, this text from 753 to 811, the only thing comparable to it is what's referred to as the long ending of Mark, Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. These verses are absent from all manuscripts, one questionable, all manuscripts prior to the 5th century, not present. Whenever they are present in later manuscripts, they appear in a number of different places and with notable variations. They contain also a number of literary features not distinctive of John. Uh, The language, the syntax, the style are all more typical of Luke's style than they would be John's. Which makes sense why we find it in some manuscripts in Luke. They're not found in any patristic writings. So any of the early church fathers, we don't find them mentioning this text prior to the 4th century. Whenever we turn to the Greek church fathers, it's even more of a disparity. It's not until around the 12th century that we find any of them mentioning this text. And finally, as I believe you'll see, as we start to look at this passage that we're dealing with today, in light of where we've been in John chapter 7, removing this account of the woman caught in adultery, You will see such strong interrelated themes that it makes sense. This text invades and disrupts a kind of natural flow that's happening in John. So as we prepare to turn from the text of Scripture to our text, I want to leave you with this response from R.C. Sproul as he was dealing with this. I hope you are not disturbed to learn that there are copy errors in the early manuscripts of the books in our Bible. Some people hear that and say, we don't have the original, so how can we say that the Bible is the Word of God? That's like saying that if someone put a bomb in the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington and blew up our official yardstick, there wouldn't be enough accurate yardsticks and copies to allow us to reconstruct what a yard is. Of course we'd be able to reconstruct it, and we could do so with infinitesimal variation. The same holds true for the text of Scriptures. We don't have the original manuscripts, the autographs. We don't have them. We have such a rich pool of manuscripts that there should be no doubt in our minds that we have the very Word of God. He's not only inspired His Word for us, He's preserved His Word for us. And whenever there is a point, whenever something's questionable, it's the strength of the Word itself that helps us to deal with those places in Scripture. I don't reject this passage from 753 to 811 in spite of the Word. I reject it in light of the very Word of God itself. So removing that from our view, we last saw the authorities seeking to arrest Jesus, 732. They send officers, temple police, to arrest Jesus. And those officers have reported back empty-handed. And they let them have it for having done so. But now we find the leaders themselves interacting with Jesus in the temple And at the conclusion, we read, they fail to arrest Him themselves, verse 20. They want to arrest Jesus, but it's becoming obvious that they don't want to do anything too public. Whenever they do arrest Jesus, it will be under cloak of darkness. But what we have now, as it were, is a trial in the light. We've seen all this witness testimony and judgment language, and it's sustained throughout this chapter, and it's almost as if we have a public trial between Jesus and the Jews here. There is a masterful flow to this court case. There's a flow to the argument that is just stunning, and I don't want to unpack it all here, but I want you to be prepared to see it. The Trial unfolds with two scenes. In the first, it's the validity of Jesus' testimony that is in focus. And in the second, it is the testimony itself, what He's testifying to, that comes back into the fore. In the first, as this happens, you're going to see a flow from who to where. Where? And then in the second, you're going to see it reversed and we'll go from where back to who. So that's the flow. Jesus masterfully handles this trial and he brings his accusers to incriminate themselves as he not only establishes the validity of his testimony, but that the testimony, the valid testimony he's presenting is also true. It's not only legally valid as it's presented, it is true. For his opening statement, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So much of our text is obviously, as I think you'll see, connected to what's been unfolding in 714 through 52. But this point, the opening statement can seem foreign even to the rest of what we're going to look at. How's it connected? Is it connected? First, many connect it to the Feast of Booths itself. If you remember, we, we saw Jesus say something in the last episode that connected making right judgment about Jesus, what that means to the ongoings of the Feast itself with this extra-biblical water ceremony that took place where a priest would go from the temple to the pool of Siloam, bring back water, and pour it out beside the altar, remembering God's provision of water flowing from the rock in the wilderness, and His provision in the land of promise and the harvest He would provide there, and looking forward for God to continue to provide thus for His people. It seems that this could be Jesus drawing on another extra-biblical kind of event that happens during the Feast of Booths. On the first evening of the Feast of Booths, there would be in the court of women, and that's not just because that's only... The way that worked is you come into the court of Gentiles, Gentiles could go no further. You come into the court of women, women could go no further. So this is the place, place where just the Jews, this is the large meeting place for just the Jews on the temple grounds. And in that area, they would light several lamps and they would have a great celebration with music and song and dancing. And there would be such light that it would, they would say there would be a glow proceeding from the temple that sort of enveloped the city. And Jesus, having taught during the Feast of Booths, at the end of it, we find Him declaring, I am the light of the world. Think of the associations that might have been in their mind as they they light these lamps on the temple grounds, remembering God's provision in the wilderness. How were they led? By this pillar of fire, by night. And Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. But second, putting this light imagery alongside imagery of witness, judgment, testimony isn't so foreign as we might think. It's not an odd pairing. John 1, 4 through 5, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The word for overcome there has a richness to it. John probably intends more nuance than one. It can be and is translated sometimes, the darkness has not comprehended it. And in this trial, we will see that the darkness not only fails to overcome the testimony of Jesus, it fails to comprehend the testimony of Jesus. Or consider how these themes dance together in John three nineteen through 21. This is the judgment. The light, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, but what does Jesus mean when He says, I am the light of the world. This is the second of seven I am statements we'll find in John. And whenever we say the I am statements, we're referring to those I am statements that are followed by a predicate. So the first one was, I am the bread of life. There are also absolute I am statements where Jesus just says, I am. But I believe one thing Jesus is saying when he makes any of these I am statements, even when they're followed by a predicate, is that he is declaring, among other things, I am the I am. I am the light of the world, which means I am the I am. I am the pillar of fire that led the people of God in the wilderness. That's why whenever David prays, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Jesus is claiming to be God. He is the light of the world. And that impacts something, what David wrote there, impacts something of what it means for Jesus to be the light. Lord is my light and my salvation. So light, salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is The stronghold. So this salvation, this deliverance means enjoying a stronghold. He's the stronghold of my life. It means preservation of life, light, salvation, stronghold, life. And a peace experienced knowing God as such are involved in this. Can you sense that then as Jesus says, I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And, when saying this, objection, interject the Pharisees, your testimony is not valid. That's what they mean when they say it's not true, it's not legally valid. Two or three witnesses are required, you're bearing testimony. To yourself, testimony is not valid. In John's gospel, though, don't you remember chapter 5? When last we saw Jesus in Jerusalem interacting with these same leaders, it was he who broached the idea of the validity of his witness. Saying, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that He bears about me is true. And Jesus goes on to make plain who that other is. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John five thirty 30-36. So perhaps, in this instance though, it's the absence of Jesus doing any sign that makes them say, oh, this time you're bearing witness to yourself. Where's the sign that the Father's given you? Either way, it's as though they think they flipped Jesus' words back on Him the way He's so often done to them. Jesus gives three reasons now why his testimony is valid. First, if he does bear witness about himself, his witness is valid because he knows where he came from, they do not, verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Jesus is not contradicting his words in chapter 5. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. This is the first of three reasons they hang together. But first point is simply this. Your ignorance doesn't invalidate my knowledge. Doesn't work that way in a court of law. Just because you don't know, doesn't mean that I don't know either. Earlier during the feast, whenever some of the Jerusalemites objected to Jesus, they said, we know where this man comes from. Jesus replies, you know from whence I just came. You don't know from where I was sent because you don't know him who sent me. And whenever he began to speak of going away, you remember the leader said, is he going to the dispersion? Is he going to preach to the Greeks? They don't know where he came from. They don't know where he's going. Their ignorance doesn't invalidate his witness. Nicodemus testifies to their ignorance whenever he asks them in 751, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They're saying his witness is invalid whenever they don't know where he came from. They don't know where he's going. They have not learned. They don't know what he's witnessing to such that they could search, is there another witness to this? Second, Their judgment, Jesus says, is according to the flesh, whereas his is one made in union with the Father. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. They judge according to the flesh, or as Jesus put it earlier in 7.24, they judge by appearances. Jesus says, I judge no one, by which he clearly means not... That he never judges at all. He's saying, I don't judge like you do, for one thing. You judge by appearances, I judge no one. But he's also speaking in regards to what we saw in John chapter three. Jesus doesn't come to judge the world because the world already stands under his condemnation, he already has judged the world. The curse has fallen. But He's been sent into the world to save the world. He will return yet again to carry out in full the condemnation in which, under which the world already lies. But as far as His very presence, God incarnate among them at this moment, He hasn't come to judge, He's come to save. Now we do read in chapter 5 and verse 22 that the Father has given all judgment into the hands of His Son. So Jesus, when He does judge, even exercising the acts of judgment in a way during His incarnation, whenever He does so, He does so in union with the Father, carrying out the Father's desires such that, you see, Jesus' witness then is not only valid legally, it is true because it is the Father's judgment. It's not only valid, it's true. And third and finally, following from this, the criteria of the law per Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, other passages requiring two or three witnesses, that criteria is met. So Jesus bears witness to himself as does the Father who sent him, verse 18. So they then question Jesus, his witness, asking, Where is your Father? So note the flow. Jesus opens with who? I am the light of the world. Jesus, as he establishes the validity of his testimony, has changed it to where? You don't know where I come from or where I'm going. And now they, trying to discredit his witness still, well, where is your father? And I believe you'll see next week the sinister nature of, of that accusation whenever they bring up Joseph and question the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. I think they're asking, where is your father? We know where you came from. But, as they're trying to invalidate Jesus' witness as to who he is, what they've really done in this masterfully by Jesus' design is incriminate themselves. You don't know where I came from and you don't know where I came from because you don't know who sent me. You don't know where. Where is your father? Jesus is speaking truths that are spiritually discerned, and they can only judge by appearances. They can only judge according to the flesh. Jesus' defense, his answer to their inquisition, is to briefly go back to who? Verse 19. You know me, you know neither me, excuse me, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. They don't know where. Because they don't understand who. And they don't understand who the Father is. Because they don't understand who Jesus who reveals the Father is. Sinner, if you're, if you're attempting to take Jesus to court. This is how silly you will always look. I pray you can see it now. They think they've got him pinned and every time it flips on them. Your knowledge is shown to be small. Your judgment's petty according to the flesh, according to appearances. So instead of this posture of objecting to Jesus' witness, seeking to invalidate, instead of this posture of pride, accept a posture of humility, and just, just admit and try to go from it at this angle, I don't know everything about him. Maybe I don't know where he came from. Maybe he's not simply a Jewish Galilean peasant who was crucified and nothing more. Maybe I don't know where he is, where he went afterwards. And then listen to his testimony. Listen to the testimony of the Spirit, and perhaps. As you read the word, the Spirit will grant you eyes, and you'll begin to realize the darkness that's within, that was determining all those presuppositions with which you looked at Jesus in the past. And you'll begin to recognize He indeed is the light of the world. What are the results of this first round of arguments? Verse 20, they don't. Arrest him. They send others to arrest him, and they ream them when they fail to do so. But here they are in the temple dealing with him directly, and they fail to arrest him, because it isn't time. We hear an echo, I believe, of the Jerusalemites' accusation of their leaders in chapter 7, 25 through 26. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Well, now they are saying something, but they're not arresting him. But what they're doing is giving credence to the excuse that the temple police put before him. No one ever spoke like this man. So here we are. We're left with the leaders doing nothing. And after the first round of arguments, it's Jesus who brings things to. Start up again with another opening statement. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So he said to them again. So he's repeating something, but it's logically developing from what he's already said and carrying it further. How's it connected? He's bringing up the issue of where. Where? Again, I am going away and you will seek me. By which he could perhaps mean nothing more than that. You're going to be seeking the Messiah and he's already come and gone. You're going to be seeking me. You won't find me. Or perhaps it's after his death. How do we deal with this? How do we dispel these rumors? You'll seek me. You won't find me because where I'm going, you cannot Come. And the reason you cannot come is because you will die in your sin. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Previously, when Jesus spoke of going away, they mocked him saying, is he going to the dispersion? Is he going to the Greeks? This time they draw a different conclusion. Verse 22, will he kill himself since he says where I am going? You cannot come. Why the change of conclusion? It's that phrase that he's added in there, you will die in your sin. So he's going somewhere. He's saying we're going somewhere. But where he is, we can't go. It's it's obvious he's saying the reason is you will die in your sin. He isn't going to die in his sin. They have enough intelligence to get that. But instead of drawing the conclusion, he's talking about his death. Does he know we're seeking to kill him? They just think to themselves, he's going to kill himself. But we've kept things on the, on the lowdown so much, there's no way he could be informed of what our motives are. He has to be talking about killing himself. Now, does he know We're seeking to kill him. And he's even okay with that? Like it's part of the plan? And then we won't be able to find him anymore? As an explanation, Jesus tells them, two origins lie behind their two destinations. Verse 23. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. To be in this world means to be in sin. You live in sin. That's the reason you die in sin. And if they don't believe in Jesus, they will die in their sin. Verse 24, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You either die in sin, or you die in the Lord. And you die as you live. And you live as you were born. If you're born in sin, you live in sin, you die in sin. You need to be born again so that you live in Christ and die in Christ. You need a new origin. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Revelation 14:13 I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Write this: Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on." Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for the, their deeds follow them. Blessed are the dead who die, not the dead, period. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Jesus pronounces no such benediction upon these leaders. He pronounces a curse. An absolute curse. You will die in your sins. Those who believe in Jesus though, as he told Nicodemus, are born again, or as that can be and is often translated, they are born from above. They have a new origin and thus they have a new destination. They don't belong to this world anymore. Jesus will say, What he said of himself, startling, he'll say it of his disciples multiple times in the chapters ahead. You're not of this world. But most striking is perhaps how he says it in his prayer to his father in John 17. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now, Jesus is not of this world in a unique sense in that he came from heaven. But, as far as just where, we, where one belongs, we are, because of Christ, we are born again in Him. We live in Him. We will die in Him. We don't belong to this world just as He does not belong to this world. They are not from above. They are from below. But in Jesus, we're no longer of this world We belong to another. We are no longer from below. We are from above. We belong to another place. We will not die in our sins because He died for our sins and He rose with life. And thus it is that they turn their question to the witness once more. Notice the parallels of each of these two scenes in this trial. Each time they think they've got a gotcha. Where is your Father? And now, here's the next one. Who are you? Verse 25. And it's right here that the flow of our text is just glorious. Whenever you see what Jesus has done, He started with who. There's a transition to where. And now He's moved it back from where to who. The first time what Jesus did is He says, Who? They ask where? Then Jesus starts with where, so that they ask who. And what's happened is they've just asked him to give witness to himself. Your testimony of yourself is invalid. You're bearing witness to yourself. Who are you? That is why he can answer just what I've been telling you from the beginning I am the light of the world. I am, I am. Jesus has much to say to them and much to judge, but what He's going to say in particular is what He's received from the Father. Verse 26. What I declare to the world, He declares to the world what He's heard from Him. They don't understand that this is about the Father. Verse 27. They're still confused. So Jesus continues by saying, when I'm lifted up, then you'll get it. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now, I think you're really set up to understand, though, what Jesus is getting at when He says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I am the light of the world, meaning I am. Consider what Jesus says just before now, and just after this question, who are you? Just before, he says, Unless you believe that I am, the He is supplied. It's not there in the original text. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then immediately after, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. Again, the He is supplied. Who are you? I'm the light of the world. I am the great I am. I am Yahweh. You don't, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And when you have killed me, you will know that I am. But what does it mean then they will die in their sins and they will know when they've lifted him up. Who he is. How do these things go together? Remember at the first Passover. John tells us of. John chapter 2. After he's cleansed the temple. They demand. That he show a sign. For doing these things. And he says. Destroy this temple. And in three days. I will raise it up, referring to the temple of his body. And John goes on to tell us, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So one way of answering this is Jesus is just speaking in general. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then men will know. They'll know that I am the Son of the Father and that the Father has sent me. But I think Jesus is much more specific as well here. I think that general idea is there, but I think something much more sad is being testified to in all of this. In Matthew and Luke, on different occasions, Jesus tells them that no sign would be given to them save the sign of the prophet Jonah. Same sign, the sign of signs the only sign given to an unbelieving generation seeking signs is that sign of signs. Matthew 12, 38-40, Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That sign was given to an unbelieving world. It's a revelation of the Father by the Spirit to the Son. And Paul opens rev- uh, the book of Romans saying of the gospel, that it's the gospel concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection of our Lord, His lifting up on the cross and being lifted up from the grave is the hour of His glorification as well as the hour of His humiliation in which the Father is declaring, this is my Son to a Wicked world, seeking signs, he makes this declaration. And in light of that, I think it's striking to think of what Paul goes on to say about general revelation. There's a general revelation given to all men, wherein what can be known about about God is plain to them. A revelation, he says wherein His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And what do men do with this testimony? Every one of them has it. Every one of them understands it. It's clear. What do they do? They suppress it. And I think what you're seeing here is these men are dead in their sins. And it will be declared to them who Jesus is and is being lifted up. Just as the centurion, and we're told not just the centurion, I think we get the impression it was just Him. It says those with Him said this as well. Whenever they saw under the darkened sky and the trembling earth, the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, they said, truly, this was the Son of God. They see that. Why don't they own it? They suppress the truth. Ephesians 4.18 says speaks of humanity in general, but it's illustrated by what's being spoken of here. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. An intelligible revelation is being made and the problem is that ignorance persists because of a hardness of heart. They all, not only the reason they die in their sins is because they're dead in their sins. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, it's made plain he's sent from the Father, and he always does what pleases him. This is plain because he did not abandon his soul to Sheol, to the grave. All of Jesus' life was one of being perfectly unified in carrying out the desires of the Father, even as He was forsaken. Nowhere more loudly could the Father declare, as He did at His baptism and at His transfiguration, no more, more loudly could the Father declare than at the cross, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I'm so pleased with my son right now at this moment that I will forgive hell-deserving sinners. This is who Jesus is. This is right judgment concerning who Jesus is. As the Nicene Creed tells us, he is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He is the Son who pleased the Father by obediently going to the cross, being forsaken that we might be forgiven. And as I've been saying these things, perhaps you have had the experience of many there, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. But as we've been going through John, you ask yourself naturally now, is this true belief or is this another example of false belief? And just as you immediately look at it, you think, this is not like what we read in chapter 2, where many believed on him because they saw the signs. These, we are told, are believing him as he was saying these things. You read... As he was saying these things, and you think, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Perhaps you think of Romans 10.17. That's Romans 1.16. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Now unfortunately, as we look at 8.31, we give pause to any kind of conclusion of that sort, but nonetheless, there's something here As he was saying these things, many believed. Perhaps it might be as you're hearing these things, you believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Perhaps as these things are being said, faith is being kindled in your soul. Sinner, if that's the case, if the Spirit has testified to the Word and the truth of who Christ is to, to you today, and you find yourself believing You've been born again. You no longer belong to this world, just as Jesus does not belong to this world. You will not die in your sins. You will die in the Lord. You no longer walk in the darkness, but you walk in the light of life as you follow your Lord. You no longer judge by appearances. You no longer judge according to the flesh. You've heard the Spirit's testimony of Christ. You've heard the Father's witness to Christ. You've heard Christ's witness to Himself, and you believe You trust. You know Jesus. You know the Father. You've been born from above. As you look to the Christ who was lifted up and who rose from the grave. You believe now. Praise be to God. As these things are being spoken, you believe. And if you do believe, I, any of the elders, any saint who's gathered here today, we would love to rejoice with you and to walk alongside you as you follow our Lord who is the light of the world. And praise be to Him if that light has shone in your heart and you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, that is our hope, that is our prayer. That that light would shine. That there would be true knowledge. That there would be right judgment. That they would know who Christ is. And thus knowing who Christ is they would know who you are. They would know eternal life. They would no longer be in the darkness but have the light of life. Father. Give us boldness and confidence. To know we've been sent out. Not of this world but into the world. And that as we testify of Christ, it will be that as these things are being said, many will believe. Father, if we cry out. We want to see that. We want to see your salvation. We want to be bold to declare it. Send now your spirit toward that end. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.